With that now, let us go to our passage for this morning. Uh, Pastor Bill Smith will be preaching from John chapter 20, verses 11 through 31. Okay. John chapter 20, the slide says chapter 21, but we'll be reading from John chapter 20, verses 11 through 31. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm also one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, and it is great to be back with you today. Had a great time last week. I was down with our sister congregation in West Philadelphia. Very much enjoyed my interactions with people there. But I am very, very thankful to be back together with you opening scripture this morning. We're continuing our teaching series in the book of John today, where we've been looking at how Jesus engages different people in different ways so that they understand better who he is. We've come to the point in the book that describes those interactions after the resurrection. We're seeing today what those first connections with people were like. Before we dive into that, however, I need to take an aside and think with you a little bit about miracles. Things like someone rising from the dead. 
Our social location is such that we live in a time and place in the secular West where the current systems of thought, the reigning philosophies, the reigning worldviews, largely begin by assuming that the universe is a closed system, that everything that happens within the universe is a product of events, product of causes, forces from within the universe, and therefore everything that takes place here can be completely understood by explaining those forces. And if we don't have an explanation now, it's just because we don't have enough knowledge and we'll get a little bit more knowledge and eventually we'll understand everything that happens here. It's a worldview that takes as its starting point that if something really did happen, it has a natural physical explanation behind it. And that if an event claims not to have a natural physical cause, by definition, it didn't really happen. Instead, that event is what? It's a myth. It's a superstition. It's a legend a fiction, it's a story, it's not history. It's crafted and it's told in order to communicate a point. Now that point might be a really good point, might be a very inspirational, helpful point, but the philosophies say you can't confuse that story with hard realities. And so in our modern world, things like miracles are discounted out of hand. They're things that cannot be true or they are things that have some natural explanation even if we haven't yet learned what that explanation is, which brings our faith in direct conflict with that belief. The belief that only natural laws operate within this world and that nothing from outside the universe can enter in and affect what happens here. Now, I'm not saying that our faith is in conflict with science. That's a conversation we can have a different day. I'm saying we're in conflict with the philosophy of scientism or the philosophy of naturalism. Our faith is in conflict with those assumptions because the cornerstone of our faith is the resurrection. We don't believe that Jesus was merely a wise teacher who gave us some great ideas on how to live, how to build healthy communities. We do believe, believe that, but we believe he's an awful lot more. We believe that he's the risen son of God. He has now opened a door for us to have a relationship with the God who made everything, the God who is outside of the universe, the God who we offended, but the God who never stopped loving us the God whom has made a way for us to reconnect with him, and that that way is through Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Now, if that's the cornerstone of our faith, that may be hard for some of us to hear because we've grown up in this secularizing kind of thought world. It's actually been hard for a number of people to hear in the church. And so in the late 1800s, the early 1900s in the U.S., a whole branch of theology was developed. We typically call it liberal theology or modernist theology. And it was an attempt to make peace between the thought patterns of the modern world and biblical historic Christianity. This new theology has a number of distinctives, but one of those is a demythologizing emphasis. And that argues that we now know that miracles, supernatural intervention, they can't really happen, but that doesn't affect our faith because the essence of our faith is not found in those supernatural events themselves. The essence of our faith is taught through those events. And so it's what? It's, it's the character of a good Christian. It's the ethics that we live by. It's the ethics that we attempt to impart to others. And so the thinking goes, when you read these invented stories, these superstitions, don't get caught up in the purported miracle. That's just what? It, it's a literary fiction. It was invented by the writer or by the faith community that the writer is representing. Don't get caught up in that. Instead, look for the message that the writer is attempting to communicate through that event. 
Now, what do you do with that? What do you do when someone says the resurrection is simply a teaching illustration, that it's a parable? It's a parable of how even when we, quote, reach the lowest points of our lives, a place that feels like death, we can find our way out again, unquote. What do you do with that? How do you engage the scripture as a modern person? C.S. Lewis was reading a commentary by someone who was arguing essentially the modernist approach, and Lewis wrote down some of his thoughts. He was uh, later invited to share these thoughts with a group of seminary students. Here's just a portion of what he said to them. If someone tells me that something in a gospel is legend or romance, I want to know how many legends and romances he has read, how well-trained his palate is in detecting them. I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths, all my life. Let me take a brief aside here. Lewis actually did more than read them. He studied them, and he studied them so well that he was an English professor who taught first at Oxford, then at Cambridge. He was an expert in all these genres. Back to Lewis. I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths, all my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like the Gospels. Of this text of the Gospels, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, by which he means it's an eyewitness report, it's an eyewitness account, or else some unknown writer in the second century, without known predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. In other words, somebody created this whole new genre back when the Gospels were written, uh, without anybody coming before, without anybody coming after. He goes on, if the Gospel is untrue, it has to be narrative of that kind. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. Now what is Lewis saying there? He's saying that there are elements in the Gospels that don't make any sense if they're not an actual report. That until the development of modern fiction, all of the elements in ancient fictional genres were there to advance the point of the story in some way. The ancient world just didn't have a genre like our modern novel that just throws in all these extraneous details so that you can take something that's not true and make it feel kind of realistic, make it feel like it's true. That kind of writing just did not exist when the Gospels were written. And so when you come to extraneous details in the Gospels, they tell you that what you're reading is a report, not a crafted story. Now, what do I mean by extraneous details? Well, let's go back to some of the miraculous supernatural passages that we've already studied this summer. For instance, in chapter 1 of John, Jesus tells Nathanael that he saw him sitting under a fig tree. That's a supernatural vision. But you never hear what Nathanael is doing under the tree. That detail, seeing him under a tree, it, it doesn't develop Nathaniel's character. It doesn't develop the narrative. And you realize that it's meaningful for Nathaniel, but it's not meaningful for you as the reader. And therefore, it wasn't meant for you primarily. It was meant for Nathaniel. When the Gospels were written, that kind of detail was only included in reports and historical accounts. It was not included in fiction. It wasn't included in myths, legends, whatever. Or in chapter 9, Jesus tells the man who was born blind to go wash his eyes in the pool of Siloam, and John tells you Siloam means sent. But telling you what the name means does nothing to advance the story. There's no additional teaching point that comes from that detail. 
There's no additional lesson to be learned from it for yourself. It doesn't move the narrative along. It's a little bit, frankly, like being told that Jesus spit into the dust, made mud, put it on the guy's eyes, and then told him to go wash. There is no teaching point to that. There's no application to you in the 21st century of what Jesus did. And so what those details do is they establish that this account is not legendary. Nobody wrote legends like that and put those kind of details in them. Instead, those details authenticate the account as a report. It tells you that someone reported seeing a man regain his eyesight because Jesus told him to do a certain thing, go to a certain pool. There is no spiritual lesson to be gained from knowing that. Or take the issue of numbers. John's gospel is just packed with numbers, and many of those numbers, they, they, they don't mean anything. They have no additional spiritual value. They add nothing to the account. We didn't read chapter 2, but in chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine, but he, we're told that he turns six jars of water into wine. Why six? Why is that important? It does nothing to the story. There's no spiritual application based on the exact number of jars that were used. You could try to assign a meaning to that number, but the text itself doesn't. So why then tell you that there were six jars? It's because that's how many jars there were. It's a report, not a parable. It's a report of a miracle, not a teaching illustration with an application to you based on the number six. Or why tell you that the paralyzed man of chapter five had been that way for 38 years? Why tell you that he was lying in a place that had five colonnades over top? None of those details gets used again in that account. Why do you need to know in chapter six that there were 5,000 men that Jesus fed with five loaves and two fish what spiritual insight do you gain from those numbers? You don't. Why do you need to know in today's passage that Mary sees two angels in the tomb? None of those numbers point to a deeper spiritual reality. None of them are used later to make a point. Those details are only there because someone is reporting, this is what I saw at that time. So are the Gospels full of reports of supernatural events? Yes, they are. Are the Gospels legends? They can't be. They don't fit into that category. They're not cleverly invented stories from which we draw spiritualized lessons. You can say you don't believe them. You can say I don't like them. I don't want this Jesus that they're telling me about. But you can't say, boy, I really find these inspiring. I think Jesus is a role model for how to get through life. You're not off being offered inspiration. You're not being offered a role model. What you're being offered is a report an eyewitness account from an apostle who at the very end of his book is saying to you, I was there. I saw Jesus crucified. I know he was dead. The Roman authorities who were very good at killing people knew he was dead. And then he wasn't. He rose from the grave. He was alive. It really happened. I saw it. Here are the details. And John says, I wrote all of this down, all of these supernatural events for a purpose. The purpose, verse 31, is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, not a good teacher, that he's the son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So we come to the end of this chapter, and I want us to see two things about the resurrection, this actual event that really happened that we're told about. If the purpose of telling us about this event is so that we might believe, I want us to see first, who is this resurrection for? Who is it? 
who might believe? And then secondly, what difference does it make in their lives? Who is the resurrection for? What difference does the resurrection make? Two points. First, who's the resurrection for? Jesus appears to several people here. But there's literally an entire world of people that he could have appeared to. That means there is something about these people that tell us who is most strongly on God's mind. They tell us who God is interested in reaching with the resurrection. So who are they? Three clusters of people. First, there's Mary Magdalene. Now, we read this as moderns, and therefore it, it, we'd, we'd completely miss how strange this report would have been 2,000 years ago in Jewish society. In the Jewish world, women didn't count as much as men. They were second-class citizens, and their society reinforced that status structurally, reinforced it religiously, reinforced it civically. So in the temple, men and women were segregated. Women sat further away from the Holy of Holies than the men did. They were not as valued. Or consider the courts. In the courts, a woman's testimony was considered invalid. They were not allowed to serve as witnesses. And yet here's Jesus, and he doesn't appear first to a man. He appears first to a woman. And not just to any woman, but someone that the Gospel of Luke tells us had been delivered from seven demons. So this is not someone that you would think of as being at the center of polite society, not someone that the beautiful people would ordinarily associate with. She was on the margins of her society, both because of her class as a woman and because of her own personal issues. And Jesus comes to her first. And in that moment, he shows you who he values. He comes to those whom society does not value, and he says, you matter to me. You're important to me. I value you. Let me reveal myself to you. I will come to you and embrace you when no one else does. It's the first group that the resurrection is for. It's for the marginalized. Second, Jesus comes to the disciples. Now, you need to remember that just three nights ago, right before Jesus was arrested, they'd all been together, and Jesus had told them, you will all fall away because of me this night. Peter, as no Peter normally does, spoke up and he said, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus tries to give him a little bit of a reality check and says, actually, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter, at that point, doubled down. And he said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And Matthew tells us, quote, all the disciples said the same. That's who's in the room a group of guys who refused to believe Jesus when he told them plainly what would happen and who then compounded their unbelief by abandoning Jesus. It's a room full of failures. But it's not a room full of past failures. It's a room full of present failures. People who are failing right this very moment. People who should have been celebrating the resurrection, not huddling fearfully from the Jewish leaders. People who knew better. Think about Jesus' enemies just for a moment. In the book of Matthew... They went to Pilate the day after Jesus had been buried, and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. And so they asked Pilate, Would you secure the tomb? We want a guarantee that no one's going to steal the body and pretend that Jesus rose from the dead. Pilate went ahead and did that. Now listen, if his enemies knew that he had said this, what does that tell you? tells you that this was something that he said a lot to a lot of people. 
If his enemies knew it, how much more did his friends know it? And yet not a single one of them that morning said, hey, let's go to the tomb on the off chance that this guy who's always been true and always been honest and has never lied and has never done anything wrong and is incredibly powerful, let's go on the off chance that what he said actually happened. No one did that. Just a brief aside. Here's another indication that what you're reading is history, not fiction. These are the guys who are going to lead the church. If you're creating the story, you would not paint them this way. You wouldn't paint them as clueless. You wouldn't paint them as unbelieving. You wouldn't paint them as cowering. You would only say this about them if what? If this is what they really did, if this is what really happened. You'd only say this if it's really a report, not a story. This is a room full of moral failures, a room full of people who thought that they were better than this, a room full of people who blew off Jesus' warnings, who abandoned him, who didn't think enough of his teaching to see if it would actually come true, a room full of people who are three times faithless, a room full of people to whom Jesus comes because that's who the resurrection is for. Resurrection is for the marginalized. Resurrection is for moral failures. Thirdly, the resurrection is for skeptics. Third appearance Jesus makes is specifically to Thomas. You remember Thomas is one of the disciples. He is someone who, along with the rest of the disciples, followed Jesus for three, over three years, and he therefore knew the other disciples, knew the other apostles. He's someone who also heard them all say to him, verse 25, we have seen the Lord. And he's someone who said, nope. I don't buy it. I don't believe you. I know that Jesus handpicked you all as his apostles to be his witnesses to who he is and to what he's done, but I don't accept your witness. I don't accept your testimony. I don't believe it's true. Thomas, who walked with Jesus for over three years, is the first unbelieving skeptic to the resurrection. And Jesus comes to him. Jesus is not put off by his unbelief. He does rebuke him for not listening to the testimony of the other apostles. That, by the way, is a rebuke for all of us modern people that we also need to hear what the other apostles have had to say, that we need to listen and believe. Jesus does rebuke Thomas, but he doesn't write him off. He comes to him. Let's think a moment for a contrast who Jesus does not come to. He doesn't come to the priests and Pharisees who arrested him, who tried him in a kangaroo court, who spit in his face, who slapped him and then said, prophesy to us, Christ. Who is it that struck you? He doesn't come to them. He doesn't come to the Roman soldiers, those guys who further mocked him, who dressed him up as a king and pressed a crown of thorns into his head, who hit him repeatedly over the head with a staff that they made him hold as a king. He doesn't come to them. He doesn't come to King Herod, doesn't come to Pilate the governor who thought they had power over him. He doesn't come to the high and mighty, to those who are right in their own eyes and who feel justified in ruining the life of an innocent man. He doesn't come to them. Who's he come to? He comes to a weeping woman, a band of fearful failures, and an unbelieving skeptic. That's who the resurrection is for. Resurrection is not for the rich and the powerful, for those who have their acts all together. The resurrection is for the poor, 
It's for the weak. It's for the undeserving. It's for those who are overlooked by others. For those who are not everything that they thought they were. For those who are their own worst enemies. If you feel yourself undeserving today, there's hope. If you're struggling to believe, there's still hope. Jesus' closest friends struggled. The ones who should have known better struggled. They're the ones that he sought out anyway. That's who the resurrection is for. That's point one. Secondly, what difference does the resurrection make? Notice that Jesus doesn't come to vindicate himself. We've already seen he doesn't go to the powerful people who mistreated him. He doesn't lord it over them. He doesn't make them grovel. But he doesn't come to the weak and the faint-hearted to embarrass them and to shame them. He doesn't rub their failures and their unbelief in their faces. Instead, what does he do? He comes to them to transform them. We'll go through each of the groups again and, and look at the difference for each. He comes to Mary, who becomes the first witness to the resurrection. This woman, whose testimony would not be accepted in court, is the first person to see Jesus, and she's the first person to tell other people what it is that she's seen. She's no longer hanging out on the margins, is she? Instead, in a very real sense, she is at the center of everything that's important that's happening in the universe right now. She actually becomes a witness to the witnesses that Jesus has picked among the apostles. She goes to them. She tells them what she has seen and experienced of Christ. She's the first evangelist, which again tells you that what you're reading is a report, not a legend. No Jewish person would have created this story. Jewish people, the very first followers of Christ, would not have accepted a woman's testimony as credible. If this were a cleverly devised myth, you would never cast Mary in the role of witness, period. Certainly not in the role of first witness. The outsider is now an insider. It's not just Mary who's an insider. All of God's people now are. We all move in from the margins. Jesus tells her, verse 17, to go to the disciples and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And you realize something new has happened here, something that wasn't there before. The Father of Jesus, the Father of the Son of God, is now their Father in a profoundly new way than he was before. The resurrection has opened the door to God's people. We now share in Christ's sonship with the Father. He is Jesus' Father and our Father. He's Jesus' God and our God. The outsiders are now insiders. That's the difference that the resurrection makes. What else does it do? It takes the disciples, this group of guys hunkering down in fear, and it empowers them to serve. Jesus, verse 21, tells them he's now sending them out on the same mission that he had. The mission that the Father gave him is now the mission that he gives to them. They are to take this message of the forgiveness of sins out to the larger world. But they're not going to do that under their own power. He tells them instead, verse 22, to receive the Holy Spirit, to receive the power of God, to carry out the mission of God. Now let me ask you, is that what you would do? for faithless moral failures who can't be bothered to check out the primary thing that you've been trying to teach them? Is that what you would do? It is what the resurrection does. It embraces you and it empowers you to work alongside God. 
It turns outsiders into insiders. It empowers you to go serve. And lastly, like with Thomas, the resurrection breaks through the barriers of your unbelief. It gives you what you need. It gives you the evidence that you need in order to believe. The resurrection has real reasons behind it that verify it, reasons that can be known, reasons that will lead you, like Thomas, to say, my Lord and my God. Reasons that turn unbelief into belief. In other words, the resurrection is all about transformation. It's about connecting you to a community in which you count. It's about empowering you to do what God himself is doing on this earth. And it's about giving you answers that are convincing when you struggle with your doubts. And when you see that, you realize that no one is beyond the resurrection. There is no one who is too socially outcast. Not you and, and, and not your friends, not anyone that you know. There is no one whose moral failure is too great. There is no one who is too skeptical and too hardened against the gospel. Instead, it's to those very people that Jesus chooses to come, and in coming to them, he transforms their lives. He restores them in every possible way. Now, why is it then that the resurrection makes this kind of a difference? It has to do with the meaning behind what Jesus says when he greets people, when he says, peace be with you. He says this three times in this passage. Verse 19, verse 21, verse 26. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. It's a reference that everything that has been wrong in the universe is now put right. The Greek word peace translates the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom means peace, but it doesn't mean peace in the same way that our English means peace. When, when, when in English, our, our word peace means pretty much an absence of hostility. Hebrew shalom is much bigger. Hebrew shalom is the restoration of a broken universe, especially broken relationships, so that everything now is harmonious, so that everything now works the way that it ought to work. And so shalom will speak of the restoration that you can now have with God. It's the recognition that sin breaks that relationship. You're born into this world, alienated from God, cut off from him, and the resurrection says that alienation can be gone. You can now be restored to God. You can have peace with him through Jesus Christ, even when you failed him. That's amazing, but shalom actually means much more than that. Shalom means that you are restored to community, that you now have a community that you belong to, that you now actually have a much larger community, the community of humanity that you care about. Shalom means that you're no longer controlled by your own self-interest, by your own self-absorption. That's been all taken away. And now you're free to care about the interests of other people. The resurrection comes and says you don't have to be alienated from the human race, trying to always get some advantage out of everybody that you interact with. Instead, now your fundamental orientation is different. At the core of your being, you now want other people to be at least as well off as you are, if not more. And you're empowered to lay your life down for them. Shalom means that you're restored to God, you're restored to other humans, and shalom means that you are restored as a human being. You're restored within yourself. That you no longer have to wonder, can I ever be different? Am I ever going to stop undermining myself? Am I going to be stuck my entire life caring way too much about what other people think about me? Will I be stuck my entire life saying things that I immediately regret, things that I cannot take back, things that destroy the people in front of me? Am I always going to be someone who's defensive? 
someone who takes things way too personally, who can never receive any kind of criticism, who thinks other people are out to get me? Will I always be controlled and addicted, enslaved by one thing or another, or another and another? Can I really be different than what I've been? Can I be changed? Can I be honorable? Can I have integrity? Can I be both bold and kind at the same time? And the resurrection says, yes. Yes, you can. Now that you've been empowered by the Spirit to join in what God is doing, now that nothing stands between you and God, nothing inside of you has to remain broken either. There's now peace. There's shalom. Peace with God, peace with humanity, peace within yourself. Which sounds like it's way too good to be true. You start to wonder, is this really possible? And, and I think what you really want to know is, is it possible for me? How do you know that? You know that it is possible, and you know that by looking at Jesus' scars. These are what he shows the disciples. These are what he shows Thomas. Those scars are a very important part of the resurrection because they remind you why there had to be a resurrection. They remind you why he had to be raised. They tell you that before there was a resurrection, there was a cross. A place where Jesus embraced your brokenness and made it his own. A place where he did two things, both of which are very important. He took your alienation and he gave you his shalom. He took from you your alienation from God, your alienation from other people, your alienation from within your, yourself, and he gave you his peace. He gave you his acceptance by God. He gave you his love for other people. He gave you his wholeness as a human being. And so you have to have both of those things. You have to have your alienation taken away and you have to have God's embrace replace it. Both are necessary and both are possible. And you know that because of the scars, because of the marks in his hands, the marks in his side. They remind you of the cross. It's amazing to me that they still remain. Everything else about his appearance has changed. You notice here that Mary doesn't recognize him at first. It's a common occurrence. His disciples don't tend to recognize him. Think about the two disciples that walked on the road to a town called Emmaus. They talked, spent the better part of the day with Jesus and they didn't recognize him. There's something about a post-resurrection body that is both like and unlike what we are now. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15 that our present earthly body is what dies, but it's raised a different kind of body. It's still a body. You're still you. You still remember. You still have those pieces together, but it's a different kind of body. There's something different about Jesus' appearance. It takes people a moment to recognize him. His appearance is different, but the scars are still there. The scars tell you what he did before the resurrection, that he won shalom for you, that you can now have peace with God and peace with others, that wholeness within yourself is possible, that he has now opened the doorway to a whole new world and you can enter into it. So if you don't have intimacy with God this morning, if you feel alienated from him, then look at Jesus' scars. If you feel cut off from the rest of his family, like you don't have a place and you don't have a community and you don't care about others, look at his scars. 
If you don't sense him empowering you to join what he's doing in this world, look at his scars. They tell you that you can have shalom. They say to you, you belong. You're needed. You're wanted. Regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done. They say, here's what Jesus offers you. Here's what Jesus won for you. The door to a whole new world is now open to you. Look at his scars and believe. Look at his scars and say to him, my Lord and my God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that there is a real resurrection, that you are alive, that you are the living Son of God who did what no one else could do, who has opened a way to the Father for us, who has allowed us to reconnect with each other. Lord God, I pray that for anyone who does not know you, that they would embrace you, that they would see what you've done, that that would move them, that they would long for what you're offering. And I pray for the rest of us. I pray for my own lukewarmness, my own hard-heartedness. Pray for my brothers and sisters. Lord, let us see you and be that much more enamored of you. Let us see you and believe in Jesus' name.